Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, you are invited to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Uh, you might have heard that we had a little bit of an incident this past week here in the church building. Uh, we had a sprinkler malfunction, so on Wednesday afternoon over the lunch hour, the sprinklers were activated and water was sprayed um, profusely and generously upon our conference room. Um, so the water came down and uh, came down so heavy it ended up caving in the ceiling of our conference room and water came out in both directions and affected many of the surrounding offices. And so, yeah, it was a little bit of a uh, distressing week, but uh, a lot of examples of God's goodness and grace in this, actually. It was over the lunch hour, so a lot of the staff were gone at the time. Jesse Smith in the foster closet happened to be here at that time and recognized what was happening and called on us and the fire department to come and help. So we're grateful for Jesse's responsiveness. Um, Lisa Ferguson has a counseling practice, an office right next to the conference room. Well, Lisa just happens to be on vacation uh, this past week, and so we're grateful that she wasn't in session at the time. And um, your elders were meeting in that room just the night prior, so we were here kind of late. And so we're very grateful that that didn't happen in the middle of our meeting, but was held off until the next day. Uh, so uh, we are asking that everybody stay clear of that area so you'll see the signs, just these halls that go by the offices and then down toward the foster closet. Uh, avoid that area and uh, be assured that we are considering, talking, and planning uh, for how we should move ahead in getting this repaired as quickly as possible. We would love for your prayers uh, for this particular situation and for your patience as well. Well, <clears throat> I think I've told this story before, um, but I'm gonna tell it again just because uh, it, it's a good story, but uh, it fits really well with our passage uh, today. It was uh, many years ago that Mary and I were on vacation, and so when we're on vacation, we'll worship uh, at different churches, sometimes churches in our presbytery, and so on this particular morning, we were headed down to Fishers to worship there, and um, we got out of the house and out into the driveway and we're getting into the car and I remember putting my Bible right up on the, the top of the car and um, we had some other things to do and we put other things in the car, I can't remember exactly what, but you know, got in the car and headed down to Fisher's and got into the parking lot and I got out of the car and realized I never took my Bible off the top of my car. <laughs> I realized my Bible is lying on the side of the road somewhere and so rather than going into this church to worship, we got right back in the car and headed back up to Yorktown, Muncie uh, in a frantic search for my Bible. Uh, there were times we were pulled off on the side of I-69. I was walking along the shoulder of the interstate thinking it might have fallen off there, driving along 32, coming back into Yorktown, couldn't find it until we got to Colonial Crest Apartments 
And as I was driving down River Road, right there on the side of the road, on a box, somebody had got a box out and put my Bible up on top of that box so that I would see it. And so I was able to get my Bible back. And this was a big deal for me because this doesn't, wasn't just any Bible. This was a treasured and precious Bible to me, one I had used many years. I had tons and tons of notes in this Bible over the years and over during the time that I was in seminary. So my Bible was lost, but it was found. And I'm so grateful for that. And you know what? That's what the story is about that we are about to read here in Second Chronicles. It's the story of a Bible that was lost and then was found by God's grace. And my question to you today before we get into this passage is this. Have you forgotten your Bible? Now, I don't mean have you forgotten to bring it to church today, nor do I mean have you forgotten where you have placed it in your house or apartment or dorm room. I mean, have you forgotten the Bible in your heart? Have you forgotten how special the Bible is? Have you forgotten to love the Bible, to cherish the Bible, to pursue the Bible? Has the Bible been put aside for you for some reason? That's what this passage here is about. We are moving our way through Route 66, continuing by God's grace to look at the entire Bible one book at a time. One sermon per Bible book is what we're attempting to do, going from Genesis to Revelation. And now we have reached this book of Second Chronicles. I mentioned last week that the books of Chronicles we think are some of the least preached from books in the Bible. So uh, some of the contents of the book might be unfamiliar to you. Um, but uh, some background information on the book, pretty similar to the background information from uh, First Chronicles, and uh, my slide here is not advancing for some reason. Okay, I was reminded I got to point this way and not that way. So, <clears throat> all right, uh, author unknown. We don't know who wrote this book. Uh, written about 400 years before the coming of Christ. Themes throughout this book, again, similar to First Chronicles, covenant, temple, kingship. We get exile in Second Chronicles. Um, significant events, the building of the temple, the life of Solomon, and the kings of Judah. Uh, very similar to the content that we find in First and Second Kings is what we find in Second Chronicles. So there is some significant overlap there. Um, but I'm going to review uh, a few things here that I talked about several weeks ago about the historical context of this situation. Um, you might recall me mentioning that the nation of Israel had been divided uh, into two regions or two countries. So we have <coughs> the uh, nation or kingdom of Israel here in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so um, much of what you read in the Old Testament will refer to these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, both referring to God's people, but there has been a divided kingdom. Um, the northern kingdom was exiled in 722 B.C. to the nation of Assyria, and uh, the kingdom of Judah was exiled to Babylon in the year 586. So that's the situation through much of Kings and Chronicles. Uh, here's a list of the kings of both countries, kings of Israel and kings of Judah. Uh, the dark grade names are the good kings. Uh, the light gray or white 
lines are the bad kings. And so you can see that the history of Judah and Israel is not encouraging, is not good. Most of them uh, bad, wicked people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, one of the kings named Manasseh, and that was in Second uh, Kings, king of Judah, not Israel, but Judah. And so today, we're going to look at this king right here, Josiah who came shortly after Manasseh, but Josiah happens to be one of the very good kings, in fact, maybe the best king aside from David in terms of his godliness and commitment to God's glory. King Josiah. Under his reign, a revival breaks out in Judah, a revival that revolves primarily around the rediscovery of the word of God. They found the word of God. And through this whole process, revival breaks out. And that's what we're going to read about today. Second Chronicles chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, there are paperback Bibles in front of you. This passage is on page nine, uh, 219. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Second Chronicles 34, starting in verse 14. Verse 14, I'll read through the end of the chapter. Please stand for the reading of God's word. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand, hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokoth, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger, and with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched." But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon the place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. O Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So my question this morning is, again, have you forgotten the word of God? And I'm going to ask four questions to you through this message to kind of help you discern that. Have you forgotten the word of God? Four things to consider to answer that. And the first one is very simple. Are you reading the Bible? Are you reading it? If you're not, maybe you've forgotten about your Bible. Here's the context of the situation. There's a temple repair project going on here in the land, uh, maybe similar to the repair project that's going to be going on across the hall here. Uh, They were gathering money and bringing in workmen to repair this temple that had been uh, neglected over the years. This person named Hilkiah, the high priest, a secretary named Shaphan, Uh, These individuals are overseeing this project, gathering up this money and making sure the workers are on site to do the work. And so while these workers are in the temple doing doing the work, they make this amazing discovery. Verse 14, while they're bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Moses. Hilkiah answered, and he says to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So this is uh, the book given through Moses. So we generally refer to the first five books of the Bible as the book of books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Some scholars question whether all five books are contained here, but at least the book of Deuteronomy, it is believed, was found in this situation. And as we see that the book of the law was found, a very common question that might come to mind is, how was it lost? I mean, how do you lose the word of God in, in, in this way? I mean, keep in mind here that um, 
this is uh, according to verse uh, eight, which we didn't read. This is 18 years into Josiah's reign, and before him was a king named Ammon who reigned two years, and before him was Manasseh. So most likely what happened is that the word was lost under the reign of Manasseh. You might remember that Manasseh was a very evil and wicked king. In fact, somebody said to me after uh, the sermon on Manasseh that she was taught always to remember how bad Manasseh was by calling him Manasty. Manasty, a good way to remember how wicked that man was, but probably under his reign, the word was lost. But you got two years of Ammon, now 18 years into the reign of Josiah, that means the word of God has been lost for 20 years. Can you imagine the people of God trying to function for 20 years without the word? That's what's happening here. So the word is lost, but now it is found. So what do they do when they find the book of the law? What do they do with it? I mean, they could have put it under a glass case. Wow, this is the book of the law. Let's make sure it doesn't get lost again. Let's put it under a glass case and we can bring in people to just look at it. Or they could have said, well, let's just put it up on the shelf. You know, maybe we'll need it one day and when that day comes, we can get it off, take a look at it. (laughs) They don't do either of those things. What do they do? They read it. They read the word. And we see that the reading comes in two ways. I mean, it comes, first of all, through private reading, through a private reading. In verses 14 and 15, we see Hilkiah finds the book, gives the book to Shaphan, and then in verse 16, notice that Shaphan brings the book to the king. That's Josiah. Reports to the king, all that was committed to your servants that you're doing. He you know, gives an update on how the repair project is going. And then verse 18, Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it before the king. They wanted to read the word. The king wanted to hear the word. And so they sat down and they opened it up and they read it. Now that seems like the most simple, obvious thing for me to say. All pastors say this, right? Read your Bible. And you're thinking, I've heard this a million times. I can't believe you're telling me this. That's all you people ever talk about is reading your Bible. But are you reading your Bible? I mean, there's a reason why sometimes we repeat things because we know it's easy to get away sometimes from the simple things. And the simple things are sometimes the most important things. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. The Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Ghost is the chief means by which people are built up and established in the faith. The Spirit does these things by the written word, sometimes by the word read, sometimes by the word preached, but seldom, if ever, without the word. If you want to grow and be established in your faith, you've got to be a person of the word. And one of the ways you do that is by reading privately, but we also see a public reading of the word. If we can uh, go forward to verses 29 and 30, uh, notice what happens. The king sends and gathers together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, Levites, all the people, both great and small, the whole covenant community is gathered together and he read in their hearing all the words 
of the book of the covenant. Everything was important to read that had been found in the house of the Lord. A public reading where the people of God are gathered and the word is read. Friends, you need that too. You need private reading of the word by yourself and you also need to come and hear the word read to you as a community. I mean, that's what happens here every Sunday. We consider that a high priority. We read to you a call to worship. We have an Old Testament or New Testament reading. We have a reading before the word. We have a reading before the offering. We have a benediction that is a reading from the word of God because you need to hear the word read. You might think, well, why is that important if I read the word privately? Why is it so important that I hear the word read? Well, there's just something about hearing the word read when you're in community. It's a reminder that we're in this together that all of us are under the authority of God's word. It's not just you seeking to understand and obey the word. We're in this together. This is a group project. And as you know, sometimes it's hard to understand the meaning of God's word, and that's why we need each other, but that's the second question I wanna ask you. Are you seeking the meaning of God's word? Not just skimming over and reading it, but are you seeking its meaning? Look what happens here with this king. It says in verse 19 that Josiah, upon hearing the word, tore his clothes. That's a sign of distress. And because he is distressed about the things that he has heard, in verse 21, he says this, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. Go inquire of the Lord for me about what I have heard, about what this word means. That's what Josiah wants. He's not reading the word and thinking to himself, hmm, I wonder what this means to me, which is the way very often we read the scriptures, right? What does this mean to me? I I don't think that's what Josiah had in mind. He didn't just want to know what it meant to him. He wanted to know what it meant. He wanted to know what Moses meant. And he wanted to know what God meant as God inspired Moses by his Holy Spirit to write what he did. And the reason that we know that is because he's looking for help. He wants someone to come and explain this to him and open up to him the meaning of this word. Josiah is a man not coming to the word as if he is the authority over the word, deciding what he wants to believe and what he wants to accept. He's a man coming under the authority of God's word. And he is prepared to receive the meaning that is there in the text for him and for his people. I mean, this is a big issue in academic circles, a big question that some scholars ask. Is there meaning in the text? Is there any meaning here at all that you and I can discern, or is the meaning only what you and I bring personally and impose upon the word? That's a big, big issue. But I think Josiah, again, is coming in a spirit of humility. He wants the prophet to come and tell him what it means. And Huldah then, in verse 23, announces, Thus saith the Lord, she says. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the text means. That's what she's saying. That there is a way to know what the text means. Now, 
That probably calls for an entirely different sermon to talk about exactly how to do that, but certainly being part of a community is one way to do that. But things have changed so much in our day and age regarding this particular issue. I mean, it used to be 500 years ago that most people would um, just assume, number one, that God exists, at least in, in Europe and 500 years ago from our Western heritage, people assumed that God exists. They assumed that truth existed. They assumed that truth would be passed down to them through the church and through their priest or their pastor or their king or their queen. Truth was primarily something passed down and it was received. But today it's very different. Truth is not received from authorities or institutions. Truth is something you find yourself. That's what we're told. It's something you look for. You discover it for yourself. You even make it up and create it yourself. And as you look out into the world, you see that there are endless options of things that you can believe. It's like walking down a cereal aisle in Walmart, and you see all of these options, and they're all legitimate. You know, Frosted Flakes and Count Chocula are equally good. What do you want to get? And that's the way people look at worldviews and religious perspectives. It's like they're all legitimate good options. And because there's such a cynicism generally today in our culture about the church and about institutions, people don't look so much for help from them and it just becomes a personal thing that we're trying to do on our own. I think that's a big reason why there's so much anxiety and uncertainty in our culture. People feel unguided, they don't know. Can I really know what is true and what isn't? It's an entirely different situation. A guy named Alan Noble wrote this way. He says, the result of all this is that as strongly as you hold your beliefs, you're always aware that they aren't really the only option. With each passing decade, as the options multiply, people increasingly feel the pressure of living in a contested space. That is, with everything you believe, it's contested, it's always challenged, there's always somebody else out there with a different view that might be better than yours. Western society has turned this experience of tentative belief into a virtue. Thus we aspire to be non-committal. What he's saying is that people are so slow to believe anything because they don't know what to believe that has led people to uh, to um, experience tentative belief as a virtue, as something to be pursued, that we don't really commit to anything, that we're indecisive, that we don't want to say we believe in this and not that, because we might be wrong. And besides, you want to be humble, and it's an arrogant thing to say you know what is true, so we'll say tentative belief, belief is a virtue. This is very common. People don't know what to believe. Josiah, friends, is not that way. I mean, that's my point here. Josiah is committed. He wants to know what the word means, and he wants to come under the authority of the word. He wants to respond to it properly. And that's my next question. Are you responding to the Bible? What is your response to the Bible? When you hear it read publicly, when you hear it preached, when you read it privately, is it a detached response? Is it an apathetic response? Is it a cynical response? What is your response when you hear the word read? Well, let's see what Josiah's response is. Look at this, verse 26. 
Josiah's response to the word. But to the king of Judah, now this is God speaking through Huldah the prophetess. And so God says this, to the king of Judah, that's Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, to inquire of me, God speaking, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, Josiah, because your heart was tender, you heard the word with a soft heart, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words. You weren't cynical. You weren't trying to pick it apart. You heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept. Josiah heard the word of God, and he was reduced to tears. He heard of the way that his people had been disobedient, had been strained from their God, all of their wickedness and rebellion, and he broke down, and he cried. Have you ever wept before the word of God? Has that ever brought you to tears? What we're being presented here with is a proper way to respond to the word of God. And what is it that he's responding to? What is it that's causing him to weep? Well, we see two things here. One is this idea of a wrathful God, quite frankly. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm gonna bring disaster upon this place, God says, upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. So probably what's being read here are the curses in Deuteronomy 28, I think it is, 27, 28. All the threats of the curses of the covenant, they're going to come down on God's people if they disobey him. That's what he's been read, and, and he's reduced to tears as he hears about God's anger against sin. But then the second thing that we see is that there's a response to this idea of an exclusive God. Because look at verse 25. Because they have forsaken me, and they've made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger. They're not worshiping the one true God. They're worshiping a multitude of other gods. Isn't it interesting that these are the two things that our culture resists probably the most about biblical Christianity. These two ideas, that God is a God of wrath and anger against sin, and that God is an exclusive God who says there is only one God and there are not multiple ways to know him and have relationship with him. Our culture reacts to those presentations with hardness of heart, and unbelief, and yet here is Josiah coming and hearing those things with a soft heart. He doesn't say, I thought God was a God of love. How can he be wrathful? And how can God be so exclusive and so narrow to say that he's the only way and to say that all these other gods are wrong? How can he do that? That's what Josiah could have said. That's what many people say today. Josiah comes and he hears what's read and he's humbled and brought to tears. Friends, as we look at the history of revival, if you've done any reading about revival in Europe, England, and America uh, over the last few hundred years, one thing that is repeatedly said that characterizes revival is people being reduced to tears in church services. There's repeated accounts of that. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in Scotland. 1839, a revival broke out there. Similar reports, people just being brought to tears, crying, moaning, groaning, crying out for mercy. 
church services ending and nobody gets up to leave. People weeping as Robert Murray McShane approached the pulpit. Weeping in anticipation of what they're going to hear. When revival happens, here are two things that happen. God's people get serious about prayer and God's people are humbled under the word of God. That's always the case. Wouldn't it be great if we had revival? God bring revival to this church. God bring revival to the evangelical church in this country. God bring revival to the Presbyterian church in America. We need this. Are you crying out for it? Cry out for revival and humble yourself before the word. Proper response. My last question is this. Are you obeying the Bible? Are you obeying the Bible? We know here that Josiah's tears are not fake tears. He's not being overly sentimental. He's not sad just because he's been caught in sin. And the reason we know that is because Josiah gets really busy about obedience after he hears the word. His tears lead to action. So see what it says at the end, verse 31. The king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. This is Josiah's response. I've heard the word, I have been humbled before it, and now my desire is to do what God says, to submit to him and to obey him. And here's what is so, I think, unique and special about this particular incident of obedience, because here is yet another thing that you hear pastors say a lot, that we need to obey the word. You hear us say that uh, quite frequently. But, but notice here what's going on, because remember God had said, back in verse 28, what God told Jude, um, Josiah um, is this, he said in verse 28, I'm gonna gather to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave, Josiah, in peace. That is, you're gonna die and your eyes are not gonna see the disaster that I'm gonna bring upon this place and its inhabitants. What, what God is saying here is that exile is coming. The people are going to be judged. That's gonna happen, but Josiah, because you responded to me in humility, you're not gonna have to face that judgment. You're gonna escape that. You will not be condemned, but I am going to bring about the exile and the judgment upon God's people, just like I said. And so you can imagine Josiah hearing this, and his response might be something like this. Well, if I'm not going to face judgment, and there's nothing I can do to stop God from judging the people, then why should I obey? I mean, what really is the use? I'm going to die in peace? Israel and Judah are going to be judged. Nothing's going to change that. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's a good deal. But that's not Josiah's response, is it? Josiah is serious. He gets down and he says, I'm going to submit myself to God. Why would he do that? And the only reason is this, because he knows it's the right thing to do. Because he loves his God. Because he has personal relationship with a God of grace who has saved him and removed condemnation from him and his desire his heartbeat is to submit to this God. It reminded me of that passage in 
Daniel chapter 3, you remember um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you remember that story? Nebuchadnezzar stands before them, and this decree goes out that uh, they need to bow the knee to this false god, to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, if you don't do this, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before this king with this threat before them, and they say this. They say, our God can and will deliver us from this, King Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your idol. We are going to obey God, whether it results in our freedom or whether it results in our being burned up in a furnace. We are going to obey this God. And that's kind of Josiah's heart attitude here. He loves God, whether he is blessed or not, he's going to obey God's word. Jerry Bridges says this, God's law as revealed in his word prescribes our duty, but love provides the correct motive for obedience. We obey God's law not to be loved, but because we are loved in Christ. Now, I'm guessing most of you here today are, are in full agreement with this, and, and this is one of those sermons that is you know, largely review. You know, these are things that, that we've heard but isn't it true that it's hard to read God's word regularly? It's hard to keep up with our Bible reading schedules. And isn't it true that it is hard to understand the Bible sometimes? We don't get the meaning. We don't know what it means. And we don't know what to do with some passages. And isn't it true that uh, perhaps we've never wept before God's word and isn't it true that sometimes we find that uh, disobedience is a whole lot easier than obedience? I think we all identify with that. And we might look at this passage and just think, you know, that's not me. I cannot do this. So where do we find hope? And the hope is, is in this. When we read these stories from the Bible and from the Old Testament, we have to always read them within the context of the full flow of the biblical story. That's the whole point of this sermon series, Route 66. We're looking at the whole Bible as one big story. And while Josiah is a very godly king, and we respect him and admire him for that, if you look at the very last verse of this chapter, it says, all his days, that's Josiah's days, the people of God did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. As long as Josiah was alive and leading the nation, the people were obedient. But do you know what happened? Josiah got an arrow in the heart. Next chapter. He died. He got killed. And as soon as he died, the people of Israel and Judah descended once again into unbelief, wickedness, and rebellion. Until finally God said, that's enough. An exile then is described for us in chapter 36. When Josiah died, it was the end for Israel and Judah. But another king came, hundreds of years later, a king named Jesus Christ, whose death was not the end, but the beginning. And he didn't die by receiving an arrow. He didn't die because he couldn't have done it any other way. No, Jesus, as king, died on a cross. He went to the cross. He voluntarily gave up his life on 
the cross to forgive all of us who really do want to be good students of the word but find it so hard to do. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for your indifference to God's word, for your hardness of heart, for your inability to to, um, respond properly to God's word. The death of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to wipe you clean from those things. His death was a different kind of death, an atoning death. And the good news, friends, is, is this, that while it's true that you and I are going to forget God's word, the word made flesh is never going to forget us. He remembered us from before the foundation of the world, gave his life for us, is resurrected from the dead, and that is a God, friends, that I want to know more about. <laughs> and we learn about him in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we do pray, we ask, oh God, revive us by your spirit. Through your word, through prayer, and as your gospel becomes bigger and greater and mightier in our hearts and minds, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.